Hello. One reason for my willingness to speak publicly on a subject for which I am direly underqualified is that it affords me a chance to declaim for you a story of Kafka's I have given up teaching in literature classes and miss getting to read aloud. Its English title is A Little Fable. Alas, said the mouse, the world is growing smaller every day. At the beginning it was so big that I was afraid. I kept running and running, and I was glad when at last I saw walls far away to the right and left. But these long walls have narrowed so quickly that I am in the last chamber already, and there in the corner stands the trap that I must run into. You only need to change your direction, said the cat, and ate it up. A signal frustration in trying to read Kafka with college students is that it is next to impossible to get them to see that Kafka is funny, nor to appreciate the way his funniness is bound up with the extraordinary power of his stories. Because, of course, great short stories and great jokes have a lot in common. Both depend on what some communication theorists call exformation, which is a certain quantity of information apparently removed from but evoked by a communication in such a way as to cause a kind of explosion of associative connections within the recipient. This is probably why the effect of both short stories and jokes often feels sudden and percussive, like the venting of a long-stuck vowel. It's not for nothing that Kafka spoke of literature as a hatchet with which we chop at the frozen seas inside us. Nor is it an accident that the technical achievement of great short stories is often called compression for both the pressure and the release are already inside the reader. What Kafka seems able to do better than just about anyone else is to orchestrate the pressure's increase in such a way that it becomes intolerable at the precise instant it is released. The neurology of jokes can account for part of the problem in teaching Kafka. We all know that there's no quicker way to empty a joke of its peculiar magic than to, quote, explain it. To point out, for example, that Lou Costello is mistaking the proper name who for the interrogative pronoun who, and so on. You're not supposed to laugh at that because it, we all know the weird antipathy such explanations arouse in us, a feeling not so much of boredom as offense, like something has been blasphemed. It's a lot like the teacher's feeling at running a Kafka story through the gears of your standard undergrad course literary analysis, plot to chart, symbols to decode, etc. Kafka, of course, would be in a unique position to appreciate the irony of submitting his short stories to this kind of high-efficiency critical machine, the literary equivalent of tearing the petals off and grinding them up and running the goo through a spectrometer to explain why a rose smells so pretty. <coughs> Kafka, after all, is the story writer whose Poseidon imagines a sea god so overwhelmed with administrative paperwork that he never gets to sail or swim and whose in the penal colony conceives description as punishment and torture as edification and the ultimate critic as a needled harrow whose coup de grace is a spike through the forehead. Another handicap, even for gifted students, is that unlike, say, Joyce's or Pound's, the exformative associations Kafka's work creates are not intertextual or even historical. Kafka's evocations are, rather, unconscious and almost subarchetypal the primordial little kid stuff from which myths derive. This is why we tend to call even his weirdest stories nightmarish rather than surreal. 
the formative associations in Kafka are also both extremely simple and extremely rich, often just about impossible to be discursive about. Imagine, for instance, asking a student to unpack and organize the various signification networks behind mouse, running, world, walls, narrowed, chamber, trap, cat, and cat eats mouse. Not to mention that the particular sort of funniness Kafka deploys is deeply alien to kids whose neural resonances are American. The fact is that Kafka's humor has almost none of the particular forms and codes of contemporary U.S. amusement. There's no recursive wordplay or verbal stunt pilotry, little in the way of wisecracks or mordant lampoon. There is no body function humor in Kafka, nor sexual entendre, nor stylized attempts to rebel by offending convention, no Pinchonian slapstick with banana peels or rapacious adenoids, no Rothish satiriasis or Barthish meta-parody or arch Woody Allenish kvetching. <laughs> there are none of the babing babang reversals of modern sitcom, nor are there precocious children or profane grandparents or cynically insurgent co-workers. Perhaps most alien of all, Kafka's authority figures are never just hollow buffoons to be ridiculed, but are always absurd and terrifying and sad all at once, like in the penal colony's lieutenant. My point's not that his wit is too subtle for U.S. students. In fact, the only halfway effective strategy I've come up with for exploring Kafka's funniness in class involved suggesting to students that much of his humor is actually sort of unsubtle, or rather anti-subtle. The claim is that Kafka's funniness depends on some kind of radical literalization of truths we tend to treat as metaphorical. I opine to them that some of our deepest and most profound collective intuitions seem to be expressible only as figures of speech, that that's why we call these figures of speech expressions. With respect to the metamorphosis, then, I might invite students to consider what is really being expressed when we refer to someone as creepy or gross or say that somebody was forced to eat shit. <laughs> or to reread In the Penal Colony in light of expressions like tongue lashing, or he sure tore me a new asshole, or the gnomic, by a certain age, everybody has the face he deserves. Or to approach a hunger artist in terms of tropes like starved for attention, or love starved, or the double entendre in the term self-denial or even as innocent a factoid as the etymological root of anorexia happens to be the Greek word for longing. The students usually end up engaged, which is great, but the teacher still sort of writhes with guilt inside, because the tactic doesn't begin to countenance the deeper alchemy by which Kafka's comedy is always also tragedy, and this tragedy always also an immense and reverent joy. This usually leads to an excruciating hour during which I backpedal and hedge and warn students that, for all their wit and exformative voltage, Kafka's stories are not fundamentally jokes, and that the rather simple and lugubrious gallows humor which marks some of Kafka's personal statements, stuff like, there is hope but not for us, <laughs> is not what his stories have got going on. What Kafka's stories have, rather, is a grotesque and gorgeous and thoroughly modern complexity an ambivalence that becomes the multivalent both-and logic of the, quote, unconscious, which I personally opine is just a fancy word for soul. Kafka's humor, not only not neurotic, but anti-neurotic, 
heroically sane, is finally a religious humor, but religious in the manner of Kierkegaard and Rilke and the Psalms, a harrowing spirituality against which even Ms. O'Connor's bloody grace seems a little bit easy, the souls at stake pre-made. And it is this, I think, that makes Kafka's wit inaccessible to children whom our culture has trained to see jokes as entertainment and entertainment as reassurance. It's not that they don't get Kafka's humor, but that we've taught them to see humor as something you get. The same way we've taught them that a self is something you just have. No wonder they cannot appreciate the really central Kafka joke, that the horrific struggle to establish a human self results in a self whose humanity is inseparable from that horrific struggle. That our endless and impossible journey toward home is our home. It's hard to put into words up at the blackboard, believe me. You can tell them that maybe it's good they don't get Kafka. You can ask them to imagine his art as a kind of door that we approach and pound on this door, seeking admission, desperate to enter. We pound and pound. Finally, the door opens, and it opens outward. We've been inside what we wanted all along. Das ist komisch. <laughs>